Why don't we hear a call to worship from Psalm 44 tonight, verses 1 to 8. Psalm 44, verse 1. We have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days, in days of old. You drove out the nations with your hand, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples and cast them out, for they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them. But it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance, because you favored them. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you we will push down our enemies. Through your name we will trample those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me, but you have saved us from our enemies and have put to shame those who hated us. In God, we boast all day long and praise your name forever. What a good word. A good word for us to hold fast to and cling to in our day. Through God, we will do valiantly, as I think it says later on in the Psalms. Let's, let's pray together. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we do come before you this evening. We thank you for this Lord's Day, June 25th, 2023. Thank you, Lord, for all those who have come this evening. Lord, I pray that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies and not towards covetousness, Lord. I pray that you would inflame our hearts, Lord, this evening to worship you, to be good hearers, Lord. I pray, Father, that you deliver us from distractions and from worries and doubts and fears, Lord. We pray that you deliver us from the evil one, Lord, who would seek to come in and distract and divide and to conquer. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit this evening. Lord, I pray that you would help me, for I am of yesterday and I know nothing. And I pray for your power, Lord, as Brother Seth prayed as well, that you would attend to this message, Lord. For if you do not, Lord, it'll, it'll be in vain. So I pray that you'd bless this word, Lord, and that you'd help both preacher and hearer this evening. Lord, we love you. I pray that your name, your holy name would be magnified this evening, Lord, that sinners would be saved here, even in this room, and that the saints would be edified and encouraged. Let your truth and your light bring forth, Lord, and sound forth from this pulpit. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. So, as we continue in our study of eschatology, here in the second sermon of four, again, that is the study of the last things, the Bible's doctrine of the end times and the last things, death, the second coming of Christ, heaven, hell, and the end times. We arrive now in the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And I believe this passage that we're going to be looking at here, the, the parable of the wheat and the tares, is an essential passage for understanding the framework and the basic scheme of the Scripture's doctrine of the last things. Before we go too far, we must understand the context in which this parable is set this evening. 
This passage of Matthew, Matthew chapter 13 is set in the midst of seven parables. So in Matthew 13, Jesus is speaking to the crowds, and there are seven parables he gives to the people and to his disciples, some of which the Lord Jesus, the promised seed of the woman, is saying only to his disciples and some to the crowd. And as we saw last week, we are awaiting a promised seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15. We are awaiting the seed that will crush the serpent's head. And here in the Gospel of Matthew, he has come. The Lord Jesus Christ is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the promised seed of the woman. For thousands of years, people waited, and now he is here. And he's teaching the people. And he is continuing on what we saw last week. And he's going to tell us now how he believes the remainder of the days are going to be laid out, how the kingdom of God is going to come in. So we need to take heed to what he says. But before we go farther than that, maybe you're asking yourself what a parable is. So Jesus is speaking in parables. He's giving seven parables. What is a parable? Michael Hoodman gives us a helpful definition by describing them this way. A parable is literally something cast alongside something else. Jesus' parables were stories that were cast alongside a truth in order to illustrate that truth. A common description of a parable is that it's an earthly story giving a heavenly meaning. So Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is the Son of God who is the Creator. All things are made by Him and for Him and through Him. Jesus has come. And as the Creator, He is pointing to created realities that have spiritual meanings to them, and He's giving us parables through them. Now, some people think, well, what Jesus is doing here, he's walking around, he's just kind of at random looking at certain things, and he's making illustrations through created realities that weren't really there before, but he's just being really wise in doing that. I would say that's not true. Jesus is the creator. The Son of God made all things. And he is purposely looking at created realities that he put into this world and drawing out principles from them. There is intended spiritual meaning in what we're seeing here. These are not random things Jesus is looking at. He's the creator, so he has meaning behind all that he's created, and therefore these created realities have meanings that he's going to show us. So keep that in mind. So we have seven earthly stories that we're looking at in Matthew 13, and the second of these earthly stories with a heavenly meaning is the parable of the wheat and the tares. And secondly, we'll look at two more elements before we actually get into the reading of the parable of the wheat and the tares. And the two elements are this. The first is that Jesus speaking in parables is a fulfillment of prophecy. So Jesus is not doing this, again, haphazardly. He's doing this as a fulfillment of messianic prophecy. We see this in the uh, Gospel of Matthew itself. It says, All these things Jesus spoke to the multitudes in parables. And without a parable, he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. This is another divine marker that Jesus is God. He is speaking things that only God knows. These are, these are divine realities, that he is speaking forth these mysteries, and he's coming in the fullness of time to tell us these mysteries. And second, and probably the most important thing before we get into the parable itself this evening, is that parables are for those who have ears to hear. It says this in Matthew 13, And the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has 
to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear, and shall not understand. And seeing you will see, and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say unto you, many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. So he who has ears, let him hear. Do you have ears to hear this evening? G.K. Beale, New Testament commentator, has helpful comment on the effect and purpose of parables in the Gospels. He says, as in the Synoptic Gospels, the formula, he who hears, let him hear, refers to the fact that Christ's message will either enlighten some or harden others. Like Israel, the church has become compromising and spiritually lethargic and has entertained idolatrous allegiances. The parables not only have a judicial effect on the unbelieving, but are meant to also shock believers caught up in the church's compromising complacency. So do you have ears to hear this evening? Or have your ears grown dull? Have you become lethargic? Have you become compromising? We need to pray even now as I'm preaching, and I was going to say this earlier, my desire is as you hear preaching that you continue to pray. Pray for the preacher and pray for yourselves, that you would have ears to hear, that I would be given grace to speak to you and to preach these things. For all I can do up here apart from the Spirit of God is just to give the context until the power comes, as Daniel Rowland once said. So open your ears. Pray that God would open deaf ears in this room even right now. Pray that God would help me and let us hear the parable of the wheat and the tares. Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 24. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir... Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now we jump down to verse 36, where Jesus gives his explanation and interpretation of the parable. Verse 36, then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. 
but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has hears, let him hear. So obviously, as we're given a divine interpretation of the parable, we're going to concentrate mostly on this second half of the parable this evening. But we do need to make some points on the first half of the parable itself. So number one, firstly, it may be helpful for us who do not live in a farming community to understand what wheat and tares are. Wheat is an edible grain producing grass, and tares are weeds that grow in grain fields, and they both look very similar until the harvest time. And the second, as we have to take note of this, both are allowed to grow until the harvest. And at the harvest, the weeds are brooded and done away with first, not last. So wheat and tares look similar, but when it comes to harvest time, you can tell the difference. And then in the parable, Jesus says, the tares, the weeds, are removed first. Now with that in mind, I want you to look at five headings. We're going to divide this parable up into five headings here to understand the interpretation of this parable. So number one, we will look at the sower. Number two, we will look at the two peoples. Number three, we will look at the two ages. Number four, we will look at the end of this age and the destiny of the wicked. And number five, we will look at the destiny of the righteous in the age to come. So number one, the sower. Verse 37, he answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Ultimately, it is the Lord Jesus Christ, by his Spirit and through his word, as he walks through this world and he sows the good seed that brings forth sons for the kingdom. Causes human beings to be brought into his kingdom. He is the vine and we are the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Not only that, he is the second Adam, as we saw from the first message here. We're waiting the second Adam to undo the effects of what the first Adam did. We are waiting for the seed of the woman to come to crush the head of the serpent. And now this seed has come. And he is coming, doing what Adam should have done, by building God's holy temple presence, building God's kingdom. And that's what he's doing through the preaching of the gospel, through his church and by his spirit. He is going and throwing the seed throughout the world and producing a holy crop. He is doing what Adam should have done. Don't miss that point. He has come to inaugurate the kingdom of heaven. He comes first as the sower, second as the harvester. This is the Lord Jesus Christ's mission, to produce a people who will inhabit his kingdom, or in other words, to spread the temple of God throughout all creation and bring in the consummated glory of the new heavens and the new earth. That is the job of the sower, and he's doing it, and he's doing it well. He is the ultimate sower. Heading number two, the two peoples. Verse 38, the field is the world, 
The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. As Jesus spreads the seeds of his kingdom throughout the field of this world, so, as we'll see in the next verse, the devil, his enemy, spreads his seeds throughout the field of this world. That's very important because we saw, again, back in Genesis, we see God puts enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And we see this continued animosity and conflict even now. The devil, who is the serpent, has his seed. And the son of man, who is the seed of the woman, has his seed. And we see that there's warring between the two. That the devil is trying to undo what Jesus is doing as the faithful second Adam. And this is something we have to take a moment to pause at. This concept of both seeds of the devil and seeds of the son of man Sons of righteousness, sons of the devil, together in the field of this world, growing together. We see that the wheat grows alongside the weeds until the harvest. Let both grow until the harvest. All of the seven parables have this similar theme of the kingdom's small beginning that works itself into almost universal reality. As Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible Commentary states, it's the growth of the kingdom from the smallest beginnings to its ultimate universality. In the other parables in Matthew 13, we see this. We see the parable of the mustard seed. It's the smallest seed, Jesus says, in the garden. It starts out as the smallest. That's the kingdom of heaven. And as it grows, it becomes the largest tree in the garden. He says, look at the parable between the leaven and the lump. The leaven is put into the dough and it slowly works itself out through all of the dough just as it is with the kingdom of heaven. We see this again and again, even in our parable here. The seeds start in the ground, and they grow, and they grow, and they fill the field, and they grow to harvest. So this is something we need to realize. Have we not seen this? Has this not almost completely come true? Everything is on schedule. Look around the world. The church has become a global reality. The word of the Lord has come true. Jesus, the faithful sower for the last 2,000 years, has been growing his kingdom. And now we see there are true believers on every continent and every country on earth. The smallest beginnings of the church of Jesus Christ has grown to almost ultimate universality. Take these numbers of the grain of salt, but doing some research on different missionary websites. Take this in. In China there are 108 million Christians with an average of 45,000 coming to Christ every day. In India, there are almost 60 million Christians with 30,000 plus coming to Christ every day. It is estimated that by 2035, Africa will become the very first Christian continent with more than 400 million Christians. And the gospel is now marching north throughout Africa. The reason for so much persecution in North Africa today is because that's where the gospel is headed. In the last 75 years, throughout Central and South America, more than 300,000 churches have been planted with tens of millions of people coming to Christ. Consider what the Lord has done throughout the world. The field of this world is becoming full with the wheat, and it is growing almost until harvest. But yet, just as that is true of the wheat, so it is true of the weeds. The sons of the devil have also grown, grown up alongside the church. We see the whole field, the whole world fill the wheat and tares, do we not? There are more believers today living than there ever has been before. There are more unbelievers today living than ever has been before. This field is getting full and the harvest is getting near. 
And this is important because this is a bearing on our understanding of eschatology. This parable illustrates the fact that both wheat and the weeds grow together until the harvest. Or in other words, both Christians and non-Christians will increase until the end of the age, which we shall see is Judgment Day. And this leads to our next heading. Heading number three, the two ages. So we've seen the sower and what he's doing. We've seen the two peoples, the sons of the devil and the sons of the kingdom. And now we see the two ages in this parable. Verse 39. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. This specific verse here, verse 39, is one of those passages in the scriptures where we get a helpful, broad, eschatological or doctrine of the last things templates. As Dr. Sam Waldron says, the Greek word for age here, the end of the age, age is aeon. It refers not only to time, but also to space. Interpreters mingle these two meanings in their definition. It is a vast period of time marked out by what transpires in it. The New Testament uses of this word age confirm that it combines itself with the ideas of world and age. Perhaps the best way to convey its meaning would be the hyphenated word world age. This can be seen in Galatians 1.4, which speaks of this present evil age, Paul says. Since it is not an evil age in heaven, the term age must refer to an age in this world's history. Similarly, in Luke 20, verse 35, Jesus speaks of those who are considered worthy to attain that age. The use of this unique word to refer both to the present and future life makes an important fact clear. The Bible views future, eternal existence as endless existence in time and space. To put it differently, the Bible views eternity as the age to come, unending time. And that is what Jesus, I believe, is trying to lay out for us here today. The Bible sees two ages, this age and the age to come. This age and the age to come exhaust all time. The age to come, which will be the new heavens and the earth, as we shall see, is not some ethereal existence in timeless heaven. It's existence on a glorified earth, endless time. Endless time. Billions and billions and billions of years will pass in the age to come. We will experience it. It won't be a timeless existence. The Bible speaks of it as an age, the age to come. Now, perhaps you're asking yourself, okay, so Jesus says the word age in this parable. So what? That's one example. Well, the Bible's full of this uh, scheme here, the idea of this age and the age to come. Many verses could be brought up, but I'll bring five to your attention this evening. Matthew 12, 32. Jesus is talking about the sin against the Holy Spirit. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. Mark 10, 30. Talking about what his disciples will receive by following him. They shall not, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution, and in the age to come, eternal life. Luke 20, 34-36, Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given into marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die any more. For they are equal to the angels and the sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. 
Paul adds his witness in Galatians 1.4. He says this, Who gave himself for our sins, speaking of Jesus, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. And finally, Hebrews 6.5. Paul talk, I believe Paul preaching here, talking about those who have professed Christ. They've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. So again, we see it again. This age, age to come. This age, that age. Paul, Jesus, the New Testament, referring to time, referring to the progress of time going forward is there's this age and the age to come. So because of this, because of this biblical witness to this age and the age to come, what are some propositions we can uh, deduce from that? Well, Dr. Baldwin gives us three here in his study on eschatology. Proposition number one, this age and the age to come taken together exhaust all time, including the endless time of the eternal state, which we've already seen. But again, this age and the age to come, there is no other. This age and the age to come exhaust all time, including the endless state. Proposition two, this age and the age to come are qualitatively different states of human existence and qualitatively different periods in the history of the world. We've seen that this age is an evil age, Paul says. The age to come is the age where there is light, where is there, there is the resurrection, where there is just the wheat. In this age, there's wheat and tares. In the age to come, just wheat. In this age, there is death, there is dying, there is marriage. In the age to come, no death, no marriage. Qualitatively different points of existence for humans. As we see in the text this evening, during this age, we see wheat and tares in a natural condition. And after the harvest, in the age to come, we'll look at just in a moment here, the wheat remains, the sons of the kingdom, and they are in a glorified state, which was supposed to be the state that Adam should have led humanity into before the fall. Again, as we're looking at this broad understanding of the Bible's understanding of eschatology, from the first message we saw Adam as the son, as the, the, the one that was supposed to represent God perfectly and produce sons and daughters to fill the whole earth and spread the kingdom of God, Adam failed to do that. He should have brought humanity to the glorified state and entered into rest, but he didn't. Jesus, on the other hand, comes as the faithful one and will bring his people into the glorified state, which is the new heavens and the new earth. Finally, Proposition 3. This age and the age to come are divided by the judgment of the wicked and the resurrection of the righteous, which ends this age and inaugurates the age to come. So the great divider, the thing in the Bible that divides the two ages is only one thing, and that's the coming of Christ, judgment day, the harvest. That's the divider of the two ages. And that leads to heading number four, the end of this age and the destiny of the wicked. Verse 40. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. This is the great divider between the two ages. Christ's glorious appearing as harvester, sending out his angels. Lord willing, we will study and consider more about the details of Christ's second coming next week, but for now, the fact must plainly be seen. There are only two ages, according to the New Testament. And this present evil age and its condition is brought to an end by and only by the second coming of Christ. 
Christ comes first as sower and second as a glorious harvester. As John the Baptist, who before he died, was seeing Jesus Christ and anticipating that second coming, anticipating Christ's work as judgment, he says, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor. He will gather his wheat into his barn and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. My brothers and sisters, friends, visitors in this room, Jesus is not to be trifled with. Jesus is coming as a glorious harvester and he will bring unquenchable fire to burn up the wheat and the tares that offend and that are in his kingdom. So my question this evening for you, are you wheat or are you chaff? Are you wheat or are you a weed in the kingdom? The harvest is fast approaching. I don't want anyone, any soul in this room this evening to say the words that Jeremiah said of the children of Israel in Jeremiah 8 when the, when the judgment was coming. He said this, The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Let that not be true of anyone in this room. Do not harden your hearts this evening. As I preach, as the word is being said, pray, God, open my ears. I don't want to be the chaff that is burned up with your unquenchable fire when you come. Now is the time of salvation. Today is the acceptable hour. Come to Christ as the sower of the seed and find peace in him. Don't allow yourself to face him in judgment. Again, as the parables were saying, he who has ears, let him hear this evening. But don't misunderstand me. This is not an appeal for some useless moral reform to try and make yourself better. Oh, I will make myself better before the harvest. And then I will become wheat so that I can be harvested and brought into his barn and into eternal life. That's not what I'm saying. You cannot make yourself wheat. As Jesus says, you must be born again. God must open your eyes. He must cause you to experience the new birth and to realize who you are as a sinner before him and judgment and flying to Jesus Christ as your only hope, saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. Have mercy upon me. I see myself in the light of all that you've said to me in your word and I repent. I remorsefully come to you, Lord. Please have mercy upon me, a sinner. I trust you, Jesus, my everything. I put my faith in you. I believe in you. You died. You were buried. You rose again. Your blood cleanses me of my unrighteousness. I trust you. Forgive me, Lord, of my sins. True conversion, repentance, and faith produced by the Spirit of God in you, being born again. That is how you become wheat. That is how you become a son of the kingdom. Not some useless reform saying, oh, I'm going to stop swearing or I'm going to stop doing these things. That's good, but that doesn't save you. That doesn't make you wheat. Oh, God, grant me repentance let this be your prayer. Oh God, grant me repentance and faith in your Son, Jesus the Messiah. That should be your prayer this evening. Examine yourself in the light of 1 John. Some may ask, well, I don't know if I'm wheat. I, I, I struggle with assurance. Examine yourself in the light of 1 John. John lays out, how do we know that we are his? He lays out different things throughout that whole epistle. I believe it's really one of the greatest epistles on assurance. It lays out, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? That's his first step of assurance. Do you even believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Number two, do you love the brethren? If you see no love at all at any point for other brothers and sisters in Christ or other fellow Christians, you have means to doubt. Because God will produce a love in you if you are born again for other brothers and sisters who are also blood-bought saints. 
The third thing John points out is, do you love his commandments or are they burdensome to you? Do you rejoice in walking the way? Not perfectly. None of this is perfect obedience, but do you rejoice in God's commandments? Are they the joy and rejoicing? Lord, I love your law. Or is it a burden? And then John talks about the idea of having that understanding that the Spirit is within you. Paul talks about this as well in Romans. He says, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Do you have that subjective element of the Spirit bearing witness with your spirit that you are the ch- a child of God? These are some marks of assurance to examine yourself in the light of 1 John, the light of the rest of the Scriptures. That's the most important thing this evening. Don't, don't miss me here. To just go away after this message, well, that was nice. It's, no, it, are you wheat? Will you be wheat on that day when Christ comes and he will gather you as a loving elder brother into his barn that you might enjoy him forever? Or will you be weed, a weed that is ripped up out of the ground and cast into the lake of fire by the angels? That's the only two destinies for humanity. You're either one of those two here this, morning, this evening. As again, Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible Commentary says, Christ as the judge will separate the two classes. It will be observed that the tares are burned before the weed is housed. In the exposition of the parable, the weed and the tares, the same order is observed, and the same in Matthew 25. As if in some literal sense, with thine eyes, thou shalt behold and see the reward of the wicked. I think this is one of the important things to realize. When Christ comes at the end of this age to bring in the age to come, as he sends out his angels, the sons of the kingdom will see what was the result of the sons of the evil one. They will see what we are talking about here, the angels taking the sons of the wicked one and casting them to the lake of fire. This will be something we witness. And it will be something, as it says here in Psalm 91, that we see the reward of the wicked. We will see what happens to those who have shunned the gospel, who have lived in rebellion to God. They are ones that are dealt with first by the angels. And this is truly a terrifying reality. I don't want you guys to miss this. Jesus speaks about this in another parable in Matthew 22. He says this, Jesus' answer spoke to them by the parable again, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Think 70 AD and the sacking of Jerusalem there. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to see his guests, he saw a man there who did not have a wedding garment on. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? 
And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is one of the most terrifying parables, in my opinion. It's as if the whole gathered universe is there, and Jesus is the glorious bridegroom. The king is there, and there is a man standing amongst all of his people without the perfect robe of Christ's righteousness, without a wedding garment on. And as the music stops, and all eyes look to him, he says, Friend, where is your garment? Where is your wedding garment? And this man, the hour has come. The door is closed, as it were. Time of probation is over. The judgment has come. He's not in a wedding garment. It's too late. This is a terrifying reality if you're not in Christ. You need to have this wedding garment on when he comes. And I believe, and other interpreters agree with me, that this is talking about the, wed- the, the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness which he provides to his people. If you're not clothed in that, if you're not justified by faith in the Messiah alone who gives and imputes his righteousness to his people by faith in him, you will be that guest on the day of judgment who does not have a wedding garment on. And this terrifying picture that we see in this parable will be true of you. Thomas Boston, the Puritan, speaks of the destiny of those without a wedding garment who are, we- who are weeds, who are not in the kingdom, but are ultimately cast into outer darkness. He says this, Their eyes shall be kept in blackness of darkness, without the least comfortable gleam of light, their ears filled with the frightful yelling of the infernal crew. They shall taste nothing but the sharpness of God's wrath, the dregs of the cup of his fury. The stench of the burning lake of brimstone will be their smell, and they shall feel extreme pains forevermore. I don't think anyone likes to preach and talk about hell, but it needs to be said. The lake of fire, the destiny of the wicked, is a real place. And what Jesus describes are just faint pictures of the horrors of the judgments to come upon those who are not his. My earnest call for you this morning, both men and women and children, is that you would come to Christ and not experience what Brother Thomas Boston just, even in his own words, faintly described. When Jesus comes again in his glory, it is going to be a both a glorious thing for those who believe and a terrifying reality for those who don't. And even for those of us who do believe, there's going to be a mixture of reverent fear that I don't think we fully have comprehended. Jesus is going to come in glory. And the Apostle John, who at the Last Supper was reclining at the table and laying his head upon Jesus' bosom, this Jesus, this, this John who was described by himself as the one who Jesus loved, who was very close to Jesus, When he sees the glorified, resurrected Jesus in the book of Revelation, he falls in his face as one who is dead. So if that's true of John, what's going to be true of you and me? When he comes in his glory, yes, we will rejoice. We will shout aloud like we've never shouted before. Our hearts will erupt within us. We will have euphoric joy. But it will be mingled with a reverent, kingly majesty that we see in Christ. And we will bow down and give him homage. We will rejoice, but there's going to be much humbling on that day, even for those who are in Christ. He's going to come as a harvester, 
He no longer will be sower. It'll be too late at that point. He will come in his glory, and the wrath of the Lamb shall be manifested. But this Jesus, who's also going to come as glorious judge, in this same gospel, as he warns of the reality of those who are not in him, also says this in, Matthew chapter, in, the, in the gospel of Matthew. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is the same Jesus. Right now, he cries out to all of you. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. So the call of the gospel is, yes, to realize your sin, but to also come to Christ, who will give you a light burden, who will come and heal you. He will come and give you a new life. He will clothe you with his righteousness and cleanse you by his blood. So yes, it's a terrifying reality to consider Christ as judge, but right now, today, he is still calling those to come into his kingdom as the sower, as the second Adam, to save those whom could not save themselves. And that leads us to the final point, heading number five, the destiny of the righteous in the age to come. Last verse, 43. Then the righteous will shine forth, as the Son in the kingdom of their Father, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Just as in the case that there's any, just, just in case there's any doubt that what was just described there, the righteous shining force of the, as the Son in the kingdom of their Father, is not the eternal state that Christ is speaking of here, let's look at the parable, parallel passage in Daniel chapter 12. Speaking and using similar language to what Jesus just said, and I believe Jesus is probably pulling from this. It says this in in Daniel chapter 12. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This is the glorified state of the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus is talking about. The righteous will inherit the kingdom of their father and they will shine forever as the stars of heaven. This is a glorious reality. Paul talks about it in this way. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered in the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. I know many of you in this room have suffered greater things than I've ever suffered, but I've also suffered things in my life, and those verses really make it all okay. What I could not even understand in my heart, God has prepared for those who love him that the glories of the new heavens and the new earth, the glories of those who are in Christ, will be unspeakable. And that is something to have great hope and encouragement in. But of course, we're not quite there yet in this series. We will, Lord willing, in two weeks, look at the new heavens and the new earth and the joy and the hope of the believer in Christ and how Christ is making all things new. But right now my time is up. So, in closing, let us look briefly at where we've been last week and this week. So far, we've seen that the end goal for creation was eternal life for God's image bearers in a glorified state dwelling with him on a glorified earth forever, as we saw in Genesis. And that plan was derailed by Adam's sin. God then intervened and promised a seed who shall come from the woman to undo the fall. And this seed is Jesus, the Messiah, the second Adam, who has come in this gospel, the gospel of Matthew, 
and has inaugurated his kingdom to abolish the reign of sin and advance creation to its greater end. And this will happen in two ages, this age and the age to come. And the great divider of those two ages is Christ's glorious second coming in which he ends this age and brings in the age to come, which is the consummation of the kingdom of heaven, the place that's better than the beginning. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for just this opportunity to gather and to hear your word preached and read. Lord, I pray that you'd have dealings with each and every one of us here this evening. Lord, that we would rejoice in our salvation if we indeed be your wheat and if those in this room who are not, Lord, that they would truly be converted to you, Lord, that you would save them, that you would deliver them out of the kingdom of darkness into your kingdom, the kingdom of your Son. Lord, I pray that you would bless the thoughts and the remaining conversations about what was said here this evening. I pray that you'd help us in our prayer meeting, Lord, that you'd help us to concentrate and to think upon eternal realities, Lord. I pray that you'd guide us in truth and away from error. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this opportunity just to, to sit, to think, to pray, to sing, to give, to honor you on the Lord's day. Thank you for this day, Lord. We do lift up our, our souls and our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen.